This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, March 31st. Derek Van Riper back from paternity leave here with Keith Law. On this episode, we will discuss some of Keith's recent travels in Arizona, some players that he has seen while on the road. We'll talk about a few teams having their depth tested early on this season and a few players that we thought were surprising omissions from their team's opening day rosters. Kind of wherever the wind will take us, Keith. I think that's where we're headed on this Friday. It has been windy out here, actually. How did you know? Just a sense. Uh, yesterday was, okay, I'm going to complain because it never reached 70 degrees here in, in Arizona yesterday. <laughs> but so I went to see a high school player out in Hamilton, at Hamilton High School in Chandler, which high school football aficionados will recognize because it's a, a powerhouse. It is also the alma mater of Cody Bellinger. Um, and it's also, I don't know, two, three miles from where I used to live when I lived in Arizona. So I head out there for a 345 game. And I roll in, and I have a light sweater on. And there are people there in, like, heavy blankets, winter, what I would consider winter coats, acting like there's a blizzard coming. And I'm like, oh, my God. Was I that soft when I lived out here? It was 62 degrees, Derek. You probably were that soft when you lived there. It doesn't matter where you come from. When you go to a place with nice weather, it takes probably a year, but then you become just like the people who are already there as far as your your tolerance for for weather. I see that in Northern California. When I first moved out to the Bay Area, I would laugh. It'd be 60 degrees, same thing. I'd see some lady walking at the park. She'd have mittens on. It's 60. And I'm wearing maybe a long sleeve t-shirt and shorts playing fetch with the dog. And I'm like, you're wearing mittens right now? This is out of control. So, yeah, it it happens. I've seen people wear mittens in the press box during the fall league before, actually. Yeah, I believe it. I briefly thought, do I wish I had my gloves? Because I have a very, like, a fairly thin pair of gloves. I can still, like, use the radar gun and write and stuff. I was like, no, that's ridiculous. It was (laughs) fine. Also, by the way, just Rock Chalowski, the kid I was there to see, went four for four with a walk, hit two no-doubt home runs, and made a really nice play at shortstop. In the freezing cold. Yeah. <laughs> Overcutting the elements for the yeah. for the big Woo! game. So who else have you seen in Arizona since you've been out there? Actually, I'll just start with the amateur side because it's quick. And mostly because these names are kind of interesting. I saw Jacob Wilson at Grand Canyon, whose father, Jack Wilson, played for a couple clubs in the big leagues. He was a Cardinals prospect who then got traded to the Pirates, I think, before he ever suited up for the Cardinals. He is almost certainly a first-round pick. He is impossible to strike out. And he's a shortstop, not a lot of power. Uh, his teammate is Homer Bush Jr. I'll give you one guess who his father was. <laughs> um, he looks, he's bigger than his dad and taller, but when they put the headshot up on the scoreboard, Homer Bush was in Toronto at least the first year. I worked for the Blue Jays too. And I look and I'm like, oh my God, that's, no, that's actually his kid. And I'm really old. <laughs> and uh, Chase Davis is an outfielder from the University of Arizona. I saw those two clubs play each other. He homered twice. So good good week for me to go see guys in Arizona, um, at least great. on the amateur side. Yeah, no complaints. And then I've bounced around mostly backfield stuff. I went into one big league game. Um, the Cubs rolled out essentially their double-A lineup for the last game against the White Sox before both teams broke to head uh, to head out for their opening day. So for folks who don't know, the minor league stuff, minor league games have mostly continued this week because I think AAA opening day is today, as we're recording this. Everybody below, AA, high, low A, they all have opening day on Thursday. So I'll be at the Blue Rocks home opener on Thursday, April 6th, Wilmington. That's my home team. Um, and also James Wood, I believe, is going to be on the roster. So anyway... There's lots of minor league stuff still going on, even though all the major leaguers are gone, which for me is great. It means I can go see pretty much anybody I want, and there's no traffic. There's no issues parking. So it's pretty unfettered access, at least to the players. And gosh, if you're out here as a tourist, you live out here, and you just want to go see a minor league game, obviously, it's sometimes finding information for the average fan is, is difficult because they don't always play it 
regular times. I was at a 1030 game this morning over in Peoria, but it's great because you're up close. There's nobody there. You're generally every lineup you go see will have a pretty decent number of prospects in it. Uh, I did go to Dodgers camp twice because that's, you know, why, why do you rob banks? Because that's where they keep the money. Right. Yeah. Did a prospect fall out of a tree and smash the hood of your car while you were there? I, I mean, yeah, basically like, I was there the first day I go. It's two pitchers they got in trades who River Ryan, who I, was, I had a post up for subscribers to The Athletic. And <laughs> I mean, he didn't throw a pit. The Padres drafted him in, I think, the 10th round in 2021. He was a two way guy at UNC Pembroke, uh, which, shall we say, is, but this is not an ACC or SEC school, right? So the Padres bring him in. He has a, gets a handful of at bats, he doesn't pitch for them at all. Last March, they, the Padres traded for Matt Beatty, and the guy going back was River Ryan, and the Dodgers scouts had seen him, had some history with him. I think you might have seen him in Instructs or something. And they said, put this guy on the mound. Well, I saw him. He was 94 to 97. He touched 99 with a plus slider. I could have arguably said all four pitches were plus. Uh, and a really good delivery. He's very athletic. He throws strikes. It's not command yet, but boy, are we nitpicking at that point. And there's no, you're not waiting on anything. This is, he's 23 and this is what it should look like. I mean, I had a scout say to me that he had seen Ryan last year and I'm paraphrasing, but he essentially said, you could have made that guy your fifth starter in the big leagues. And the only hesitation was that this guy's thrown 40 something professional innings ever. He didn't pitch a ton in college. I mean, they were just Dodgers were being cautious with him. That's the only thing holding this guy back. And I said, he could be a top 25 prospect. He's got to stay healthy. He's got to hold up. He's got to maintain this stuff. Freaking Dodgers, man. You know, just two days ago in this feed, we had a, a bold predictions episode, which for me is just, it's saying the most outlandish thing you can to prefabricate a receipt. So that way, if the thing happens later, you can have a receipt and say, I said that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And you somehow look like a genius, even though you said something stupid. Yeah, 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 I get it. So the stupid thing I said was, my bold prediction was that the Dodgers are going to miss the playoffs this year. Oh my and we're God. all going to get the wrath for the next 10 years because they're going to you know, win two more World Series in the next 10 years. They're going to be mad. Yeah, they're going to come back firing next year. And they're going to be the typical Dodgers, right? Mm-hmm. I basically looked at it and I said, they've got a couple injuries already. It lost Trey Turner. The Gavin Lux injury didn't help, right? They're, yeah. they're a little more vulnerable than the Dodgers teams of the last eight to 10 seasons. That, that's agree. just where they're at right now. Yep. But the way they just continue to find players and develop players from every corner, taking a guy like that from a team in their own division. In their own division, yeah. It's absurd. So I guess thinking about it from a how bad is this call going to make me look, what do you think of the guys they're going to rely on more heavily this year? We've talked about Miguel Vargas a few times, but James Outman, in the time since you and I last spoke, has made the roster and is going to make an impact, it looks like, early on and maybe throughout this season. Take a look at guys like Michael Grove. He may see some innings now because of the Ryan Pepio injury. Bobby Miller's down with an injury of his own right now. Right, so you take a look at some of these guys. That Gavin Stone probably going to give them a lot of innings at some point this year. I have to think so. Yeah, I like a lot of those players, but it seems like they're already tapping into that next wave. We know they have the resources to go get more, but isn't this a problem at some point? Like, can you lose as much as they've lost and withstand a handful of injuries? We know Clayton Kershaw is very unlikely to give them more than 150 innings in the regular season. Sure. It's almost like they they plan for that by now. They know. So all of these things start to come together. Are they one or two prominent injuries away from actually being in danger? Or am I just a sleep-deprived new parent? <laughs> yes, sputtering congratulations, out fragments. by the way. Thank you. If I fall asleep during the pod, it's not because you're not interesting to me. It's because I am just lacking sleep. I, I, w- I never pay attention to you anyway, so I wouldn't notice. All right. Well, it's more fair this way then. <laughs> Before I answer your question, by the way, there is... So say that this turns out to be true, that the Dodgers just fleeced the Padres for River Ryan. You're, we're starting to build like this chain, right? The Padres fleece the White Sox out of Fernando Tatis Jr. The Dodgers may have fleeced the Padres out of River Ryan. And so one of my readers pointed out in the comments today, well, the Astros fleece the Dodgers out of Jordan Alvarez. This happens to everyone. Oh, I love it, right? Even those are three smart organizations. No one is talking about these guys as, as idiots. 
right? I'm not going to say which organizations those might be, but right, even the good ones struggle sometimes evaluating their own guys. River Ryan to me is a bit more interesting because there was a little bit of a change, right? The Padres knew he was a two-way guy, so it's not like they didn't think he was a pitcher, but the Dodgers and their scouts who were really involved, I've asked them, who were really involved in this process were very adamant. This is a pitcher. He needs to be on the mound. He's going to get better just by virtue of only doing the one thing. I think they did some small things with him also, but just simply avoiding no longer having to worry about two things allowed him to take off like that. And and I would credit the Dodgers there for a great process. I mean, this, they are one of the best at having best organizations in baseball at having all departments really work together. So when there's a trade happening, they're talking to their pro scouts and to their amateur scouts and we're applicable to player development. Oh, here's video. Here are our reports. What do you think you can do to maybe help this guy get better once we get him in, et cetera. So all of that is worth mentioning. Um, and yet at the same time, they had Jordan Alvarez right there and just, you know, I, I mean, I have asked them too. There's a lot of reasons why they were comfortable letting him go, but obviously they didn't think he was going to be this that he's turned into. Right. Yeah. Yes. That was for Josh Fields. For Josh Fields. Yes. Not Louisiana Fields for the for the Dodgers there. So to your question, yeah, I could see the Dodgers missing the playoffs. I actually don't think that's that crazy. Now, I did have them winning the division. And the main reason I did, I had them winning the division but losing in the playoffs. And the Padres actually going to the World Series, which was a little bit of splitting the baby, right? That that these are two of the I don't know, three best clubs in the National League, two of the four, at worst, two of the four best clubs on paper going into the season. And I did sort of think, well, kind of want a way to reflect that a little bit in the prediction. The Dodgers, it's easier for me to cook up a scenario where they miss what I predicted by 10 wins. Harder for me to see that happening to the Padres. But I also look at this Dodgers system, and you just rattled off a bunch of those names where I think, yeah, any or all of those guys could help the big league club this year. I understand they're not all going to be stars, right? That's not, nobody is predicting that. One of them might be, certainly. Um, it's entirely possible that, I don't know, James Outman wins rookie of the year or something. He certainly got the upside to do that. James Outman could strike out 28% of the time and still win rookie of the year because what he does when he puts the ball in play is going to have a lot of value and what he's doing on the bases, et cetera, et cetera. They just have so many of those guys. Landon Knack probably comes up and gives them, you know, 35 good relief innings at some point. It's crazy, right? It is absolutely crazy that they are still able to do this after winning for so long, right? They're not, this team is not drafting high. I don't think they've drafted in the top 20 since, I don't know, Walker Bueller. That's eight years ago now. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, For people who don't know a lot about James Outman, the slight knock on what he did in 2022 is that he was a little old for the level, yes. right? 25 years old, started at double A, finished at triple A, kind of split the season evenly, hit 31 home runs between those two stops, stole 13 bases. OBP was 390 or better at each of those two levels. That's mm-hmm. a really good player. And if you can mm-hmm. use him on the big side of a platoon to start any place center field, you use him in that role, see how it goes. If it doesn't work out, you can find a way to make it work. The problems on the roster might be the older guys, might be guys like Chris Taylor and Max Muncy. They might be more of the the leaks than the young guys that they're starting to rely a little bit more on this season. Haven't we seen already with Taylor? Like, I think he's not the same guy he was two or three years ago. Um, Yeah, big jump in K rate last year. Big jump in K rate, right? That's concerning. Is he heading for the cliff? And then, because I think it's easy, even for those of us who follow this, when a player becomes a regular later in, I was going to say later in life, later in his career, um, compared to what we think of as typical, you know, the cliff comes fast and we tend to forget. I tend to forget, hey, he's actually quite a bit older than you realized. Yeah, he's only been a regular for a couple of years. Oh, wait, he's actually now at the age when hitters start to decline. And nature doesn't know, right? It doesn't, well, you know, you didn't become a regular until you were 29. So that's fine. Um, Josh Donaldson's a good example of that, where it's easy to forget that Donaldson, I mean, God, this came up. I don't even remember what I was saying or writing at some point. Was like, oh, yeah, he's actually like pretty old. And it's easy to look. I mean, it must have been something I was doing this winter. It's like, 
hey, it's pretty easy to see that this guy just made that may be it. What we saw from him last year, yes, I understand there were injuries. There's always a chance that he bounces back. But he's also at the age where sometimes they're just done. Guys are just done, and nobody likes it. That's just the reality. That is what history tells us about position players, and it tends tends historically, really going back to Bill James on this, the, it's particularly true of players who are less athletic and who are more, um, you know, who play less valuable positions or don't play them well, that overall that class of players tends to age a little bit worse. And Taylor isn't quite in that group. Yeah, Muncie, I think of Taylor and Muncie as kind of medium. They're not medium and they're sort of in the middle. They're not the high super athletes, but at the same time, these are guys who've been able to handle some difficult defensive positions, at least for portions of their careers, where I don't think they're, these are guys who are going to speed to the cliff in 34, 35, and then they're just done. But it's a possibility. I mean, that's how what you just described is the kind of the Dodgers' worst case scenario. And, you know, I'll also mention too, okay, Walker Bueller's probably not going to see him at all this year. Oh, well, Dustin May's back. Well, how much can he really pitch? Right? He threw Five or six starts at the end of last season? Was it even that many? He's not going to make 30 starts and throw 160, 70 innings this year. I doubt it. They can get away with a lot of starters that have shorter starts or more limited season workloads because of their depth. It, it's right. much less a problem for the Dodgers than it is for just about any other organization to have a projected starting five that has the collection of injuries that their group has. Between right. Urias earlier in his career, you know, Kershaw with his back more recently, Cindergaard with the Tommy John just a couple of years ago, May also with the Tommy John. Like, if you had that in a lot of other rotations, it would be massive downside. Their downside, and the way I described it in the bold prediction was if they miss, they're missing by a game or two. They're not missing by 10. It's going to be like a last day of the season sort of thing. It's going to mm-hmm. be some fluky thing like Matt Beatty, who plays for the Giants now hitting a home run against them. And that's going to be the thing. Like, <laughs> AJ Preller set it up the whole time. He's like, oh, here's, here's my plan. Off Ryan, who's making his major league debut. In- right. Right. If that happens, I put down the mic forever. Uh, that's hilarious. I quit while I'm ahead, and I just go walk the earth and just enjoy my time away <laughs> in nature. If, on- if only these outrageous takes paid as well. Yeah, they, they don't pay. They pay okay. They don't pay as well as they should yeah, in, the, no. in the grand scheme of things. But Okay, so the Dodgers, slightly vulnerable, but they're the damn Dodgers. So that's why it's a bold prediction and not a likely sort of thing. Are the Yankees in some trouble? I don't, I don't always want to talk about the big market teams like leading off the pod, but you look at the same, same kind of thing in their rotation. Rodon's hurt right now. Severino's hurt right now. It doesn't look like those are long-term injuries, but they're concerning given the importance of those guys. So they're going to lean on Clark Schmidt. Domingo Herman's in the rotation right now. Cole, Nestor Cortez, of course, there too. And then Johnny Brito is going to start for them this weekend. He's sort of the unknown for me. Is this a success story for the Yankees where they've got this guy that we haven't talked a lot about that comes in and can pitch well for them? Or are they scraping down to a level of upper organizational depth that could actually be problematic for them in the short term? I mean, you are kind of nailing the reason why I had them behind the Blue Jays. I think the Blue Jays have a better rotation. I think the Blue Jays have a healthier rotation. I think the Blue Jays are just are less are also less vulnerable. The Yankees rotation is largely full of guys with pretty significant health question marks, either right now or just based on their past histories. Luis Severino has really not stayed healthy for five or six years now fulfilling, frankly, a lot of folks' predictions that his delivery would lead to injury problems. Um, I like Clark Schmidt. I think he is a big league starter. And at the same time, boy, has he had a hard time staying healthy. And and they don't have it. Carlos Rodon obviously has virtually no history of staying healthy. I'm very happy for him that he finally got paid. But he's had injuries going back to when he was overused at NC State a decade ago. These are... They have really banked on a fairly short list of starting pitchers who have um, who have pretty big injury concerns going back a long way. I, you know, the Blue Jays have they do have some rotation concerns. I mean, I really wonder if Jose Barrios is going to be able to contribute at all at this point, or is that just somebody they're going to? I mean, it's really shocking to me how quickly he's gone south. But um, you know, I wonder if that's a contract they're just going to try to dump at some point. But I think the Blue Jays are 
potentially better equipped to deal with the loss of potentially one starter, for example. And it's just less likely that they're going to, certainly less likely that they're going to have what the Yankees have, where they're starting Johnny Brito, who was 24 last year. So he's 25. I don't know that he was on anyone's prospect lists. He was certainly not on my prospect lists. I've actually never seen him, which is kind of shocking for a pitcher in the Yankee system, given how often I tend to see their affiliates. He was at Somerset, yeah, each of the last two seasons, and Hudson Valley. Like I typically see these clubs. It's actually kind of surprising to me that I've never seen him. Of course, he had a five ERA at Somerset in 21, went back. He had a really nice year in the minors last year, mostly throwing strikes, but not missing a lot of bats, which is definitely a concern going forward, particularly you're going to be pitching Yankee Stadium. It's a little unforgiving. I'll be very curious to see what he looks like and if this stuff is any different than what was reported. Like I said, I've never seen him. At the same time, it's, wow, a lot went wrong if Johnny Brito is making a start for you on opening weekend. Like, I don't think that was the Yankees' plan. No, that was not how they drew it up. But if you get to the middle of May and you have Rodon and Severino back, then everything is fine so long as something else doesn't break. So. It could all be for naught. Could just be some early upset stomachs uh, in the Bronx. Uh, by the way, with the Jays, you know, Gossman, Manoa, Bassett, fantastic three up top. The the back two, if Barrios doesn't bounce back, I, I didn't think he was going to age like this. I'd be stunned if he doesn't at least have a useful back end starter sort of year. Uh, it is flabbergasting. I have gone a little back and forth on Barrios over the years when he was a prospect. You know, had some questions about what the ceiling really was. He was six foot, didn't pitch with a lot of plane, thought he would end up homer prone. But he made some adjustments. He added pitches as he went along. God, the Twins people absolutely loved him. And then, like, what was he in Toronto for about two months, 20 minutes? And it was, like, the heck happened? Like, it was over. And it seems like it was kind of an across-the-board drop-off. And I really, I have no good explanation. But it's like the ink was barely dry on the contract extension before he was just, he looked cooked. And what I know, spring training is really not very determinative. He didn't look any better in spring training, folks I know who saw him, which is really concerning. You'd at least like to see, well, stuff's a little bit different, or, or he seems like he was locating better. He's like, no, this is exactly what he looked like last year. Yeah, it was it was a mixed bag. I think there was one pretty good start later in spring training. But the strange thing was when the Twins traded him to the Blue Jays, Barrios almost identical numbers after the trade. It wasn't yeah. like he went to Toronto park factors or something like that. Really started changing things for him right away. It was a, it was a delayed sort of collapse for him. Yeah. That trade was cursed by the way. Oh yeah. Everybody involved in that trade is hurt. It's hurt, right? Is an Austin Martin. He's trying to avoid Tommy John surgery. So the last thing that guy needs is to miss a year of at bats because he was looking a little better in fall league last year, but he was hurt. He's, he's had, I think two hit hand or wrist injuries and I think a hamstring at some point. I feel like he's had three different injuries in the last two years, two of which came after the trade, not counting what's going on right now. And if he has Tommy John, I, I just throw up my hands. Like, this guy needs at-bats. I mean, they're trying to make a fairly significant change to his approach um, to get him to try to use his hand and wrist strength a little bit more and start to drive the ball a bit more, at least to the gaps, to get to extra base hits. That is not going to happen if he's not playing. And the timing, if this happens in October, right? You think, well, he's probably back by April or May and he's fine. But if he ends up unable to return this year, um, unable to, uh, sorry, if he ends up unable to avoid surgery because he has a partial ligament tear, then the whole year is lost. I think it's a slightly underrated pen for the Blue Jays, though, too, starting to look at some of the names they've put together in that unit over the last year and change. Uh, but Barrios and Kikuchi could be a little bit of weakness for them. I think you talked to Stephen Nesbitt while I was gone about Ricky Tiedemann. I did. As someone that's probably going to have I some kind of impact I asked him to be the permanent year. co-host, and I don't, I, you know, they don't listen to me. <laughs> he, um, did he want to do it? <laughs> I don't know what he said about me. So. <laughs> um, we did talk about that. And I, I think it's interesting. The Blue Jays have a an interesting quandary with him. Assuming all is, uh, everyone's healthy. They could choose to push Tiedemann a little faster and get him to the big leagues and maybe put him in the bullpen uh, as a way sort of the apprenticeship toward, with a goal towards making him a starter in 24. Or they could say, no, we think your long-term development is better served by having you to continue to work as a starter in very a very controlled environment, AAA, for most or all of the 2023 season, and then try to bring up guys like Yosver Zulueta or Hayden Junger who are 
potentially starting pitching prospects, although at this point, I think Zuleta's just got to go to the pen between injuries and not throwing enough strikes. Um, he's just got, it's actually a decent delivery for a starter, and he's got four pitches. It's just not working out. He's a bit older, and so this makes some sense to push him, uh, push either of those guys and say, all right, we're happy to use to move you guys to the bullpen. Not that we don't think you could be starters, but your upside is not what Tiedemann's upside is. And let those guys come up and supplement the bullpen, and then you're managing Tiedemann differently because he does have the higher ceiling. He's the best prospect in the system. He's their only guy on my top 100. You could say we have sort of one player development plan for him and a different one for all of the other pitchers in our upper minors. One other team that's having its depth tested a bit more in the early going than people would have expected, of course, would be the Houston Astros, right? You get the Jose Altuve injury right now. Brantley's still coming off the shoulder injury. They, of course, added Jose Abreu over the course of the winter, so that could be a pretty big upgrade over what Yuli Gurriel mm-hmm. gave them last year, so maybe Huge. that offsets yeah. some of it in the short term. But they've got a few unfamiliar names to a lot of people getting an opportunity to play right now. Do you see that being problematic? Because the AL West is a bit better. Seattle mm-hmm. seems like they continue to close the gap on them. The Angels are healthy right now. And, and looking at even the secondary pieces in the Angels lineup on opening night, it finally looks like a complete lineup to me. It finally looks like a team that would belong in October instead of having two or three stars up top and then a bunch of guys that are really just bench guys getting stretched into larger roles. So I, I think they did have a really nice offseason adding to that roster and, and making themselves a, a, bit, a bit better prepared for the inevitable injuries that will plague a team over a full season. Yeah, part of their... I'm sorry, I'm... I'm Speaking the obvious here, but so much of the Angels' fate depends on a full, healthy season of Trout, too. Right? There's just nothing you can do if he if you get 150 games out of him. It's very different than if you get 110 games out of him or fewer games. So that's just there's nothing you can do to plan for losing one of the five best players in baseball for that amount of time. Um, it turns out they probably have two of the five best players in baseball. One thing I mentioned in my preview too was you know Shohei Otani's got a he's, he's always got a higher injury risk because he's a pitcher. Because he's doing two things, and there's just a greater chance of him even just having some minor, a lat strain, something that turns out it's not that minor. But you know what I mean? Non-surgical injury that takes him out both ways, and you end up suffering. Even before talking about the fact that he's, obviously, he has had Tommy John surgery before. Um, I, I don't know that I feel the same way about that Angels lineup. I still think there's a bunch of positions where they're likely to be below average they're not zeros, right? This is a better Angels lineup than we've seen the last few years, but I still look up and down and think, I mean, we really hope Anthony Rendon gets healthy and bounces back, but there's a couple other spots where I look and think you could, you probably have to do better to compete in a difficult division, right? If this was the AL Central where the bar is a little bit lower, it's different, but the Mariners, I think, are clearly better on paper and seem pretty healthy, and the Astros... I'm okay with where the Astros are right now. I do. I feel like it's a little bit of the Dodgers of the AL in that there's there may be a little transition going on, um, but they are and their system has certainly thinned out because they've used the the fruits of a very productive farm system quite well. But they've also had, you know, I think of like David Hensley, who was a bit of an out of nowhere guy, and he's 26 still. Yeah, he's 26. Uh, no, I'm sorry, he's 27. He just turned 27 three days ago, actually. A belated happy birthday. Um, he was never on prospect lists, I think, on anybody, certainly not on Mike. He was always so old for where he played, and the pandemic really hurt a lot of these guys. Yet all he's really ever done is hit, and then he got up to the big leagues, and he was hitting, and he hit very well on a tiny sample, but also it was good contact quality. I had somebody who, a scout who mostly covered the minors, who happened to see him in September and said, Hey, that guy can really hit. Yeah, he was never a prospect because he was so much older. Again, what kind of what we were talking about earlier with guys like Taylor and Muncie. Yeah, he's 27. He's going to end up at least something of a regular this year because L2 is out, but it turns out he might be pretty good. And that's something the Astros have done an excellent job with over the last five to 10 years, I would say, is uh, identifying those guys, whether it's from the draft, he was a 26th rounder, which doesn't even exist anymore, or in other organizations, finding guys like that who can at least come up and provide some value. They're not stars, but they're not asking him to be a star. Just, we need you to fill in for a couple of weeks while Tuve recovers. And then after that, maybe you're a utility guy 
but a utility guy who we can play a lot because it turns out you can hit. I saw Yainer Diaz got the start as the DH. They've got three catchers on the roster right now. Yeah, he's pretty fun. I like him a lot from an offensive profile perspective, and clearly they value defense behind the plate. Martin Maldonado is a great defensive catcher. Yes. He's been there a little while now. How much do you think Diaz will catch as he continues to get more big league experience? Is he a 50% of the time sort of big league catcher, or is that even pushing him a little bit too much? you got to catch him, right? Because that's a work in progress for him. And the difference between... Yiner Diaz, just to be clear, Yiner Diaz is a prospect. He is a big leaguer. He's got a chance to be a regular, even if he ends up having to play first base because he can hit. I don't know if there's much of a chance of him being more than a regular at first base. Um, We'll see. It's a possibility, but it is not a great chance. However, if this guy can catch at all, then you're talking about somebody who might be, you know, four or five or more wins at his peak. Now I'm saying again, low probability, but it exists. The possibility exists. He has caught, he is not uncatchable. He's not unplayable behind the plate. You've got to give him opportunities, pick your spots with him, figure out, okay, First of all, you're just, you know, Maldonado's going to need days off anyway. So you work around that. And also, who are the guys who are better to catch? Who are the guys who are worse to catch? For example, Hunter Brown, who is the Astros' top prospect, um, who, uh, if he's pitching, tremendous stuff, below average command. I want Maldonado working with him. I want him working with him, one, just for receiving a blocking purposes, and also, I want Maldonado literally working with him like before and between starts. Here's a, here's the plan. Here's how we're going to utilize your stuff. Whereas Diaz, I might try to pair with maybe a veteran starter who's got a little better command, who's obviously open to working with him and saying, this is a way to also transition you into the big league. So you can be very thoughtful about this, recognizing Maldonado is not going to catch every day. There may also be matchups where you just look and say, hey, we'd rather have more offense against this particular pitcher this particular day. We'd rather have a little more stick. We're willing to trade back a little bit on defense. Yeah, I wonder if um, you know Fromber, Valdez, and Hunter Brown are two guys that we won't see Diaz catch. But when he does yeah, catch, fair. it's going to be Jose Urquidy. More more command first would make some sense, sure. and maybe Luis Garcia too could be the the other guy that he occasionally works into catch. But I just like the bat a lot. Would love to see what he could do if he gets better behind the plate. He'd fill a kind of a longer term area of need if it works out, even if it's only again in a timeshare. I like I like the idea when you're building a roster of having a player like Diaz who only has to catch 80 games, but you still play him the other mm-hmm. 60-plus as a DH or a first baseman because then you're taking wear and tear off of his legs. One thing I love, would love to see more teams do also with the extra roster spot now. I mean, for so long, it was 25. I remember briefly in the 80s when it was 24. Um, the extra roster spot, don't give it to a pitcher. We don't need, you don't need more pitchers. That's not really the issue. So many teams had gone to the smaller benches. And I think that was actually hurting a lot of clubs offensively and arguably defensively as well. But you can be more creative with someone like, like a Diaz. Maybe Diaz is never really good enough to be 120 game a year catcher, but he's good enough to be a 60 game a year catcher and the bat really plays. And then you can move him catcher first base DH. It's probably much easier to find the next Maldonado um, you know, Maldonado is just older now, but to find the next guy like him is a really good defensive catcher. And you essentially create a, an offense defense platoon behind the plate. And the Astros are a team where, you know, based on you know, Dana Brown is new there, obviously, but based on the last two regimes that they've had there under Click and Lou now, would do creative stuff like that. And I'm going to, uh, would like to assume some of the people who are, who have held over from one or both of those regimes are still there and still able to work with the with the coaching staff to be creative like that. Because I think that there are lots of players kicking around like Yanir Diaz who, you know, it, if we're, what we're seeing turns out to be true, this sort of middle projection where he's good enough to catch some of the time, but maybe not a good enough catcher to catch all the time. There's no reason that guy can't play 150 games a year. He just needs the right organization. And I think Houston, at least based on the, past five to 10 years, they are that organization to do it. Yeah, I think we're seeing that in Toronto for sure. Alejandro Kirk, you know, working with Danny Jansen oh, yeah. right now. That's a good combo to have where, you know, you can manipulate the playing time for those two guys and, and keep them both fresh over a full season. Yep. Get more from them as hitters. Allow them to trade Gabriel Moreno, a very, very good player 
for Dalton Mercer, well, obviously a good player, but they felt good enough with their catching situation for the next several years that they could trade Moreno, who was their number one prospect going into last year, I think by acclamation. Speaking of prospects, they've been discussed a lot over the last few weeks. So we saw Anthony Volpe on opening day. We saw Jordan Walker. We saw Oscar Colas, uh, Bryce Terang, Carlos Vargas, if you're going a little further down prospect list. But the biggest surprises, I think, for me were some of the guys that did not make their opening day rosters. And I think Grayson Rodriguez might be number one on the list for most people based on the state of the Orioles rotation, based on how they would probably want to get him as much experience in the big leagues as possible, even if they have to manage his innings carefully over the course of the year. Um, So how surprised were you that Grayson Rodriguez was not included on the Orioles opening day roster? And do you think they made the right decision for his development? I was surprised because I thought, I'm sure listeners will tell us if this is wrong, but I thought Mike Elias had made comments during the offseason that at least strongly implied that Rodriguez would either make the opening day rotation or was in line to make the opening day rotation. I want to put words in Mike's mouth, but that's, I believe that that was the intimation. And the explanation for him going down did seem a little bit like post hoc. Like we, we already decided we were going to send him down. Now we've got to explain why. Like we've got to come up with the why. And at the same time, like I've seen Grayson a lot over the last few years. His results have a little bit outpaced the stuff. And he has, he does have issues with his breaking stuff that he could, he, he throws both breaking balls and that he could continue to work on. I just don't see any reason he can't work on that in the big leagues. Also, I worry you're going to send this guy back to AAA and fastball changeup alone. And that changeup has really progressed nicely for him over the last couple of years, going from 19 to now. He could just go to the minors and just carve guys up with those two, not learn anything. Now, the Orioles are not morons. They're going to obviously send him down and say, we need you to throw certain percentages of these pitches and we are not coming up until we reach certain goals with these. That's pretty standard. At the same time, could he benefit more by maybe getting hit a little bit in the big leagues, but continuing to work on those pitches? And maybe it's a question of deciding which, what is your primary breaking ball going forward? Cause we know the fastball is going to play. We really know the changeup is going to play and the changeup helps the fastball play. Eh, could all that be done better in the big leagues? Probably. I think so. Yeah, the limit here is 16 days or more in the minors for mm-hmm. Grayson Rodriguez, and the Orioles get an extra year of service time. So that's kind of what's hanging the balance here. And given how how difficult it's been to increase his workload year over year, that extra year makes a very big difference in this case, assuming you know he's able to stay healthy through the entire time he's there. That is always my argument with teams pushing back, holding guys down for free agency, where... Are you really telling me you can project six to seven years out how effective he will be and how healthy he will be? Because you're lying. Like, there's just nobody is that good. To me, if they're get that pitch, if you think that pitcher is ready, just get him to the majors. Mm-hmm. I don't care if he's in double A, I don't care. He should be in the majors now. I will entertain that a lot more with position players, certainly and particularly the position players who are ready at 20 or even 19. Whereas Jordan Walker is 20, right? Yeah. If you wanted to make that argument, hey, they gave up his age 26 season, potentially. I'm sure the Cardinals will sign him long-term, but it's going to cost them more to do so. He, Jordan Walker's age 26 season is the one that is, that's the, that is the, the flip, the one that if they'd held him down for two-plus weeks, they would have kept his age 26 season. His age 26 season is probably going to be really, really valuable. I do understand that a little bit more, and I feel better about that projection. Um, with a pitcher, though, like, we are not that good. Nah, I'm not going to pretend we are. Next time I talk to Eno, I'll say, Eno, how do you think Stuff Plus grades out over six or seven years? Like, If you're here today, how much are you losing a half decade from now, and it's a lot like historic. You charted over no time. No idea, right? You lose just, a few ticks of velo in most cases, and it's just not the same. It's the range of right. It's your confidence level. It's it's range of outcomes. You may say, "Well, look, this is what we feel very good about this median projection for Grayson Rodriguez or whoever the pitcher is every year going forward." But your confidence level each year going forward gets lower and lower because the range of potential outcomes gets wider. And you have to, with a pitcher especially, there is a non-zero chance that Grayson Rodriguez's 
age 27 season. Well, I don't know what year we would be, but that 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 extra year that they're getting, that the actual value is zero because he gets hurt. I'm not wishing for this. I'm not projecting this. I'm just saying that is a possibility that you have to factor into this calculation. Whereas you know right now he's healthy and could probably get a lot of big league hitters out. And could maybe take you as a fringe wildcard team and be mm-hmm. just enough to put you into the postseason. Oh, imagine if they miss by like a game because I don't even know. I'd have to look up who their actual nominal fifth starter is. It's not going to last right now. But if that guy gets bombed once, one time, Grayson Rodriguez, meanwhile, rolls through AAA and strikes out 17 and in four innings. I'm going to guess it was because of some transaction that AJ Preller made like six years ago that actually <laughs> caused that to happen. 4D chess. Yeah, that's what's going on. Time for some game theory. If you're paying attention, that's, uh, that's exactly what's going on. The other player that I thought was a little surprising not to see on an opening day roster was Bo Naylor. Because if you look at the Guardians, it, it, maybe it's the organizational philosophy with them. They're more cautious with the promotion of their young players. Service time, obviously a factor. They are a frugal organization, um, to use a very fair and polite word. Mm-hmm. A great season from Naylor last year between AA and AAA. Spent a little more time at AAA. Very, very briefly saw some time in Cleveland at the end of the year. Mike Zdino came in on a one-year deal. I get that. Yep. That makes sense. You get a guy that hits for power, handles the staff well. Great. You could have had a platoon. You could have had mm-hmm. some kind of soft platoon even where it's a 50-50 split and you just make your lineup better and you also kind of ease into your catcher of the next six years. So it, it may not be long before we see Bo Naylor, but don't you think he's ready to be a, a, at least a part-time, if not a regular catcher at the big league level? I wonder, I have not asked them about this particular one. Well, also because teams don't really want to talk about that stuff. Um, because, you know, especially if there might be a service time consideration here. I wonder if some of this was O'Neiller was really terrible in 2021. He hit a buck 89 and he struck out just shy of a third of his play appearances as a 21 year old in double a, he had jumped two levels. Like he, he was in low a before the pandemic. Nobody plays in 20. They jump him to double a and he struggles. He returns to Akron double a again to start 22, completely different player. Carries much of that, not all, but much of it forward to AAA. He did strike out quite a bit more after the midseason promotion. And I wondered, even before spring training started, particularly once they signed Zanino, my thought was, I wonder if they feel like they want to make sure that this is sustainable. That what we saw from Naylor in 22, which he really hadn't performed like that anywhere except for the summer when he was drafted in 2018, to say... Yeah, we, we really want to see this carried forward a little bit further. And maybe say, we want you to go play 30 games or so in AAA and cut the strikeout rate a little bit more. It was not outrageous, but it was a shade over 25% there his first time through it at AAA. Because I've not heard really any criticism of his defense. He's a tremendous athlete for a catcher. They have always praised his work ethic. I know people who knew him as high school or amateur. Everyone praised the work ethic. That was not really the concern. I don't think he's a great defender, but I think he's fine. It, it, if there is a baseball rationale here, it's the bat. That, that is the one thing I could think of, as opposed to Rodriguez, who has a pretty lengthy track record of success. He's really never struggled at any point, because even when he hasn't had all the pitches, um, I think back to when he was a, a first year, first time in full season ball, he just could bully guys with the fastball because he was a smart enough pitcher to just be able to, all right, well, this is the pitch that's going to work for me. And so he could just dominate some guys with velocity, even as he was working on developing the changeup, which if, you know, I do have to pull it up. But I'm sure when I first saw him, I remember seeing him at Delmarva. I'm trying to remember who the opponent was. It was five innings. I think he threw 66 or 63 pitches. And he punched out double digits, I'm pretty sure. And he could just do it. He was just doing it with the fastball. And I was like, well, this is silly. But it's like, there's all this other stuff missing, right? He's not like a complete pitcher, but he's just too good. For the level. And with, with in Naylor's case, Naylor was amazing in double A, and he was just very good in triple A last year. I could absolutely see a front office discussion that says there's obviously there's a financial reason to send him down, but there's a decent baseball rationale in this one. Yeah, I think the thing that's hard for a lot of people to really understand from the outside looking in is what are teams using as their final checklist before mm-hmm. they let someone take on that opportunity, right? Was it really Jordan Walker's spring performance 
that pushed him onto the roster? Was it really Anthony Volpe's spring performance that pushed him on the roster? Was it Grayson Rodriguez's poor spring that kept him off of it? We never really know for sure. And no. it's reasonable enough to say it's a part of the decision-making process. And the, the importance may vary from organization to organization, but it's still probably a relatively low-importance factor. If you, if you have a horrible spring training, yeah, it's probably hard to debut on opening day. That probably mm-hmm. does work against you. It, the optics are strange, right? You have a fan base that will will critique you, and you'll you'll hear about it, right? It's all all these downside things. But it's like, who cares? Who cares? If they critique you. Play the best players. Like, wh- why would you judge a player on eighty or fewer plate appearances in spring training, especially in a year when a third of the player pool is at the World Baseball Classic? Well, this this is my issue, and let me just say, and I know you you agree, like. Walker and Volpe are stud prospects, both in my top 10. We're not saying they're not worthy of being the big leagues. It is the process that got them to the opening day roster that we're talking about here. Right. And I agree. It's, it is a, it's a small sample in exhibition games where teams aren't exactly trying to win the way that they do during the regular season. And you are getting a range of at-bats talking about hitters here against guys who are big leaguers, but who often, like, they're not trying to win a roster spot, right? They're just trying to get their work in. All the way down to the guy who was brought over from minor league camp for the day and is going to go to low A to start the season. And, you know, maybe he throws 97 and doesn't know where it's going. Or, or he's a 25-year-old, you know, minor league free agent, didn't get a non-roster invitation that is there to just soak up an inning for the day. A lot of that goes into these spring training numbers. It's why they have no predictive value. Spring training performance really has just no predictive value at all for the major league season. People have been looking for this predictive value for as long as I've been even thinking about baseball like this, and they really haven't found it. And it just worries me when you make that decisions as large as the ones you just mentioned off of such a tiny sample. If you decided going into spring training, Anthony Volpe is going to make our roster as the shortstop. Okay, sure. He did nothing to dissuade you. At most, the only thing that I can think of that would keep me from wanting to put someone on the opening day roster if I thought they were ready would be process-related stats. If Volpe came into spring training and struck out two-thirds of the time, had just an sure. obscene strikeout rate. Didn't hit a slider the whole month. Sure. Okay. He he doesn't look ready, or he's just not right at the plate. Let's give him a couple of weeks and then bring him up just so he comes up in the right headspace. Like mm-hmm. that's that's important. We want him to succeed. I could I could see that. But even if you took all of your plate appearances against actual big leaguers early in games, you're talking about thirty to forty plate appearances, which statistically mean nothing. So that is yeah. the problem. So yeah, it's always used as an explanation when guys get sent down. Sometimes it's even mentioned for a reason why guys make it. And I know it's like it's not as important as it's made out to be in the quote. There's more to it. They don't want to tell us sure the hope real so. reasons, the real things that are are driving decision making processes uh, in most organizations. You know, it's it's funny you mention this too. So I saw Michael Arroyo, who's a Colombian shortstop prospect who played in the DSL for the Mariners last year at 17. I just saw him today. I mean, a few hours before you and I were talking. Um, he's 5'8 now. I'm sorry, he's 18 now. He's listed at 5'8. That's really funny. I think he's a touch taller than that. Um, but anyway, he didn't look great at shortstop today. Now, I'm not judging you, right? This, is a, this was a very brief look. But if he looked like that over the course of the two weeks of games or so they were playing on the minor league side, that could be the difference for me in saying, because it was very much like it's really interesting to watch. His footwork wasn't very good. It was a pretty routine ground ball, the one that I'm particularly picturing here. Footwork wasn't great. His hands were, it was almost unconfident in getting the ball there. And it was a pretty routine 6-4-3, just moving to his left. He was awkward getting into position, a little awkward getting the ball. And a couple other plays that were not great. And if that's what he looked like for the two weeks, I could see the Mariners saying, that's the difference between we're sending you to low A right now versus you're going to stay back and extend it and we'll just defer that decision at some point. So I think what you're talking about uh, should apply at all levels. Those things are interesting. Also, somebody asked me in comments um, a week or so ago, you know, well, what about basically they were, they were essentially asking more about TrackMan style data or StackCast type data. Yeah, I think that's different. If a guy shows up and the pitch, you know, hey, that breaking ball's got a much higher spin rate or spin-based direction, like, velocity on his fastball is much different. This hitter is hitting the ball three miles an hour harder. That's different because it might be a sign of something physically has changed. I am much more open 
to making decisions on that basis versus what you're talking about, which which we're agreeing is just way too small of a sample size. Yeah, because I think Statcast that's that's like scouting with technology more Agreed. or less. Like it, it's a really advanced look at just how how similar players can be across levels. It's one of the easier ways to do it. It's kind of hard to do it any other way. So that's yes. why it's such a valuable tool to have in the toolbox. I agree. I love having it. I mean, to me that, gosh, I was at a game yesterday where I just happened to be sitting behind the machine where I could see the, the track man stuff on the pitches. And you know what? It's good to me. It's a great, a quick reality check too. Hey, I thought that had pretty good spin on that breaking ball. Oh yeah, it did. Okay, great. It's good to know. You know, I'd re- I mean, I would, I would always defer to the machine, right? It's going to do better than I will. Now, what I see is relevant because it's what hitters are are seeing too. If it's a perception thing, maybe there are other reasons. But I love having that information. And most of the scouts and coaches I know, oh my god, I was at one in Florida a couple of weeks ago at the Rays camp. There was a coach who was closer to my parents' age than to my age, certainly, and he is talking about induced vertical break. Where did they find you? Right, that is the. <laughs> Right. Well, I always knew Moneyball was a lie anyway, but holy cow, like he wasn't in that room. <laughs> oh, between Moneyball and trouble with the curve. Oh, don't even. The broader perception of Major League Scouts is so unfair because of Hollywood. It is yep. <laughs> wildly inaccurate. Right. Yes, absolutely. There are so many more golf hats in the scouting section than they see in the movies. <laughs> that is very true. We have to go on our way out. A reminder, you can get a subscription to The Athletic for a dollar a month for the first year at theathletic.com slash baseball show. We'll bring you to that offer. You can read all of Keith's notebooks. You can check out his win totals piece that went up. Uh, and you can find out how much Keith hates your favorite team. Good numbers <laughs> to do it. So feel free to leave him some comments there. There's always a lot of activity in that section on Twitter. Keith is at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Have a great weekend. 